Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Bill Weld was elected twice as governor of Massachusetts as a Republican in the 1990s. He then ran as vice presidential nominee on the Libertarian Party ticket last time around in 2016. Weld famously dove into the Charles River as governor, and now he's done something even more outlandish, returning to the Republican Party and launching a long-shot challenge to President Trump for the GOP nomination. I'm Andy Metzger of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by my colleague Michael Jonas and Bill Weld himself. Thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure to be on the sacred podcast. <laughs> um, so we it's Friday today while, while we're... Um, talking, and earlier this week, the House impeached President Trump. How did you think that went down? How did House, um, the House overseen by Nancy Pelosi, how, how, how did they do? I, I thought it was pretty powerful. Uh, I noted that uh, either today or yesterday, uh, the publication uh, Christianity Today, which was founded by the Reverend Billy Graham, parted company with Mr. Trump in a very strongly worded uh, editorial saying that the impeachment proceedings had made it unmistakably clear uh, which the Mueller investigation had not done, uh, that the president had uh, abused his uh, oath of office and violated his constitutional duty. Really strong fighting words from a very temperate publication. And, you know, if the president standing with communities of faith uh, begins to erode or crumble, uh, that's one of the pillars that's been uh, holding him up. And you uh, both worked on the Watergate investigation that preceded Nixon's almost impeachment and uh, I believe you were a witness for the defense on the Clinton impeachment, and you've studied in some respects the Andrew Johnson impeachment, and here you are now running for president against the third president ever to be impeached. Yeah, my job uh, on the, for the House Judiciary Committee back in 1973-74 was to read and study every single impeachment proceeding that had ever occurred, either in Britain or in the United States. So. I know, for example, that it has never happened that the House managers trotted over the Senate and said, okay, here are our witnesses and here are our exhibits, and the Senate said, oh, no, we don't want to hear any evidence. That has never happened. Uh, it has never happened before Donald Trump that a president said the, uh, the Article I, uh, the legislative branch of Congress, has no authority to investigate me, period. It's just never happened. And, you know, I've, I, his lawyers have taken that position recently in court a couple of times rather tentatively to incredulous queries from the federal judges. Are you really averring this? That is the position. Yes, Your Honor. You know, they didn't want to say yes. So they said, that is the position. <laughs> and so that that sort of brings up sort of the question of, of your run here and just kind of lay out, you know, your view of the of the Trump presidency, the what it represents, and, and, I, and I think what you've talked about pretty eloquently and strongly as the danger that it represents. Sort of make right. that case well, for it's, us. It's, like the articles of impeachment themselves and the position that the, uh, that the president took to produce the obstruction count, all of this is totally unprecedented. We've never had a president who came anywhere near this. Uh, Mr. Nixon uh, basically was forced to resign from office because he was caught lying on TV that he didn't know anything about uh, the Watergate uh, cover-up uh, conspiracy, whereas, in fact, he'd known all about it. That pales in comparison to any one of a number of things that Mr. Trump has done. I think if I had been in charge in the House, I probably would have added uh, another article for the 10 counts of obstruction of justice uh, regarding the Mueller investigation, that over a 1,000 career federal prosecutors 
said in writing was uh, one of the most clear and convincing uh, bodies of evidence in an obstruction case that they've ever seen. And I can say the same, having personally and through supervisory capacities seen hundreds of obstruction cases. You just never see a case where the defendant has ordered someone to file fictitious documents or ordered three or four people to lie in order to preserve his own position. I, I've just never seen evidence like that. And yet it's de rigueur in the Trump administration. Um, and so you're competing in New Hampshire. And actually just today, uh, Secretary Galvin drew the names for the primary ballot in Massachusetts and I believe you're number one, as is, coincidence would have it, Deval Patrick on the Democratic side. Um, but the mass GOP who called you a Benedict Arnold when you got into the race um, subsequently tried to make an argument that you were not um, qualified for the ballot and tried to, tried to say you shouldn't be on it. You shouldn't be a, a choice for Republicans voting on Super Tuesday in Massachusetts. What does that say about uh, your old party here in Massachusetts? Well, it says they're Looney Tunes. I mean, that's Jim Lyons. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's uh, in some ways an able figure, but he's, he's way, way out of line. He's just doing everything the Trump people tell him to. And in fact, the Republican State Committee in virtually all of the 50 states is the Trump campaign organization. So it's not a surprise. Uh, some of the things they do are surprising. I thought Lyons saying a two-term governor of his state wasn't a Republican, two-term Republican governor. I thought uh, when they tried in New Hampshire to abolish the first in the nation primary on the ground that, well, they didn't have a ground. They just said, let's abolish it this year. That'll be good for New Hampshire. That went over like kind of a lead balloon. Uh, in Alabama, we recently uh, paid a $15,000 filing fee, and they cashed our check. Uh, this is in order to get on the ballot. They cashed our check and then said, wait a minute, we're not going to have a hearing to see whether you're a real Republican, because if you're not, we're going to rule you off the ballot. <laughs> I thought that was a bit cheeky. <laughs> How many states um, will you appear on the ballot in? Well, we'll be there except where it's not legal for us to be there. In four or five, at least four or five states, the, the president has prevailed on the state party to cancel the primary uh, on the ground that uh, that happens when there's a president with no competition from within his own party. I would have thought that uh, a two-term Republican governor from within the, own, uh, the same party would be competition. So I think that was just a, a, a fig leaf. The other one they said is, oh, it's so expensive to have primary elections. We'll save money if we just cancel them. Well, that, that, would, that logic would extend to just canceling all elections because they cost money, it, another fig leaf. So it's not real. It's a pretextual, but it's as dictated by the Trump organization and the Trump campaign in Washington, D.C. And, and, and what would you say is sort of the end game goal here. I, I suppose people running for president would say the goal is to be elected president, and I understand that. But for those who might, uh, you know, be skeptical of, of achieving that outcome, is there, is there sort of another set of, uh, well, another goal well, that, the that, short, that your run could achieve? The, the short-term objective is to uh, considerably exceed expectations in New Hampshire. Pat Buchanan, essentially, uh, his blow against George Bush 41 when Pat got 37% was the beginning of the end for Bush 41, who just a month earlier had had 91% favorability rating in both parties nationwide. It shows you how quickly things can turn. And that's in the absence of any scandal whatsoever. 
uh, and Gene McCarthy got 41% against Lyndon Johnson. Johnson dropped out of the race, sitting president of the United States, dropped out of the race immediately. So New Hampshire can be powerful. And at the very least, I would uh, want to do well enough uh, to uh, have a following wind uh, to get us to Super Tuesday, March 3rd, when we have Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, Colorado, uh, Virginia, California, and a variety of very interesting states on that, uh, on that ballot. Uh, you know, uh, within the campaign, the goal is 51 percent. It's not 37 or, or 41. So would you consider it a victory if um, you only served to politically weaken President Trump and result in his losing his reelection bid? Well, let's say I got X percent in New Hampshire and it knocked him off his pins and was obviously part of the beginning of the end for him. That would not be winning for me, but it would be an achievement. I see. And what have you been up to? What's the campaign routine like? How often are you going to New Hampshire? How often are you going to other states? I've been in New Hampshire uh, three and a half, four days a week for quite a while. I mean, I can do that and sleep in my own bed in Canton, Massachusetts, which uh, except for uh, Deval Patrick and Elizabeth Warren, nobody, oh, I, Bernie Sanders, I guess, could do this. Except for half the field, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, we have a real strong steering committee up there led by uh, the man who uh, was in charge of both of John McCain's successful insurgent Republican wins in the primary there in 2000-2008, Peter Spaulding, a long-serving executive counselor there. Uh, I've spent, uh, for some reason, a bunch of time in Detroit. Uh, the NAACP had their annual meeting out there, and the top ten Republicans were all there, and I was invited as well. Uh, and it was right after uh, Mr. Trump had said to the four uh, Democratic congresswomen of color, why don't you go back where you came from? And the Democrats were tiptoeing around, not wanting to call him a racist. And I took the mic. Uh, I was uh, batting cleanup and said, um, let's get one thing clear at the beginning here. Our president is an outrageous racist. And every Republican in Washington now has a choice to make. And they think it's a political choice. But it's not a political choice. It's a moral choice. And if they do not expressly disavow, and I mean expressly disavow the outrageous racism of this president, they are all going to be defeated at the ballot box next year. Bye-bye, Republican Party. And guess what? That kind of brought down the House, which had not been brought down before. So I love Detroit. And then I returned a couple of weeks later for the Forbes uh, Under 30 uh, meeting, which is... Not sure you qualify, White, but... No, the, well, we, uh, Mark Sanford and I were uh, dispensing pearls of wisdom to uh -huh. them. But uh, that was another one where we were very, uh, very well well received. Um, another one was in Miami, the National Association of Black Journalists, ditto. Another one was uh, in Washington at Georgetown, which is a symposium on uh, climate change, where there were, I think, six Democrats and myself. And the moderator at the end said, uh, you know, again, I went last, and the moderator said this, would have, uh, this whole event would have had an entirely different flavor uh, if you had not participated here, which is true. I mean, my, uh, without getting into the weeds too much, my presentation on climate change is technical, and it shows what you have to do to get that amount of carbon out of the atmosphere, whereas the Democrats, led by Senator Sanders, uh, their, their platform is, I'm going to spend $16 trillion uh, to combat climate change. I'm going to spend $14 trillion to combat climate change uh, without the supporting detail. And so in Detroit, it was you and the top 10 Democrats. Is that's, that right? That's right. And um, one other Republican who shares your point of view on Trump's comments about uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and others is, of course, 
Charlie Baker. Matter of fact, um, the other day on GBH, he said that the reason he remained in the Republican Party is because of you and Paul Salucci. And he also said that he thinks that Donald Trump is unfit for president, and he's believed that from the get-go. Uh, is Charlie Baker going to stay on the sidelines on, in this primary fight, or are you encouraging him to get involved and endorse you? I, I, I haven't talked to Charlie about that yet, and I try to make it uh, a point never to ask anyone to do something that's not in their own best political interest. In other words, I never ask people to walk the plank for me, which is something Donald Trump does every day of his life. And, and matter of fact, he commands it. And he's essentially instructing the Republican members of the Senate to walk the plank for him and vote to acquit him without hearing any evidence. I would think that might make for quite a tough reelect for those Republican senators to know that uh, th they had taken instruction from the White House uh, and uh, plainly violated their constitutional duty to cast a, cast a vote based on evidence just because the president told them to do so. I would think they would all lose their seats for that. But, but we kind of know that apart from sort of questions about maybe Susan Collins in Maine, that the country just seems so polarized and people seem so dug in on their views here, sort of regardless of what the evidence may show, that uh, it's, not, it's not really seeming like a climate that's conducive to deliberation and, and real reflection. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I know one sport where the uh, unthinkable can become the inevitable in a matter of days, and it's not, it's not the National Football League, it's national politics. And, you know, Mr. Nixon was sitting uh, high and pretty uh, until the day that those tapes came out. And I was advised not to take the job with the judiciary because I was on the Republican side. They said, you'd be throwing your career away. This guy just took 49 states, and he's going to be in power forever. Uh, so you'll be ostracized. And it turned out not to be the case. Within two or three days after the tapes coming out, Barry Goldwater went to the White House with Hugh Scott, the leader in the Senate, and John Rhodes, the leader in the House, Republican leaders, and said, Mr. President, you've lied to me for the last time. You now have no support in the United States Senate. Now, three days earlier, Nixon had 46 or 47 votes in the United States Senate, but it just ran through the Senate like uh, uh, wildfire in, uh, in prairie grass. And you know the, the backdrop for this, and I aver this, I cannot prove it, but my sense is that the Republican members of the Senate, by and large, are not personally fond of the president. And uh, if the caucus as a whole got the feeling that uh, they could vote without being individually held to account, that is, if there were some facsimile of a secret ballot, former Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona has said that would produce not 20 votes against the president, but 35. He's that personally unpopular with them. And everyone's going to watch the polls, you know. Right now, it's 50-50. Uh, the president should be removed. The president should not be removed. I think that's a pretty alarming statistic. If I'm playing defense for the president, half the country thinks he should be removed, not just that they have an unfavorable opinion of him. They think he should be removed. And that has stayed constant for the uh, last uh, month or so. But if that starts to change and it moves up to 55-45 or gets to 60-40, you're going to see an entirely different calculus on the part of every politician in Washington. And yet, uh, that's what Jeff Flake said about the 
Senate and the Republican caucus in the Senate. But of course, Mitch McConnell is in charge of the Senate. And he said that he's going to take his cues from the White House about how to proceed. And I can't imagine the White House is suggesting to Senator McConnell, let's have a secret ballot so that Republicans can sort of start inching towards removal. What do you really think is going to happen in the Senate? Well, as of last night, and something may have happened this morning, I've been in meetings all morning, but it appeared that Speaker Pelosi might withhold the articles until she was able to secure agreement between Senator Schumer and uh, Senator McConnell about uh, ways of proceeding so that it wouldn't be this unprecedented, no, we don't want to hear any evidence, which has never happened in history, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, And let's say that stalls a little bit, and Senator McConnell says, no, I'm not going to play ball, no way, no how. Well, I think uh, Nancy Pelosi has the strength to uh, fold her arms and say, okay, you're not going to see these articles until you do. We'll send them over when we're damn well ready. How do you like them apples? And the Republicans might or might not think that that suits their fancy. I suspect that the president would not be in favor of that kind of suspense, that kind of Damoclean sword hanging over his head, nor would he be in favor of the impeachment uh, proceedings in the Senate uh, sort of hovering over the early primary states. That's a whole lot of publicity that I don't care what anybody says is not favorable publicity. And you mentioned that, you know, this kind of issue about, say, the president and the uh, question of racism is, is really comes down to being a moral, a moral question. And, and the editorial that I read also in the magazine uh, Christianity Today, in the end, I mean, it, 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 it sort of addressed the, the sort of the question of impeachment and the details of that and said the case was unambiguous, but above and beyond that or, or in addition to that, 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 that they just said it's just hard to escape the idea of, of this guy's kind of complete moral, moral failings. I mean, how do you, how do you uh, sort of reconcile uh, or reckon with your parties uh, sort of going, going along with that? I mean, I, you know, we can all sort of understand kind of the well, the I, kind I, of strange aberration that's Donald Trump, but but that seems to now be sort of ha- have kind of captured the entire party apparatus. Yeah, no, I, I cannot reconcile with it. I cannot reckon with it. Uh, we've all, most of us have children or family. I've got eight kids and nine grandchildren now. And, you know, if I had to tell them I did nothing to stop Trump after this, that, and the other, uh, I'd, I'd feel very puny. That's... <laughs> Uh, and that gets me jumping out of bed every morning into both pant legs at the same time. But that's why I say, uh, you know, if, if in the face of everything that's happened, uh, the Republicans in the Senate uh, unanimously stand up and back Donald Trump, I won't say we've automatically lost the country at that point, but I will say we will have lost the Republican Party, and it's not going to survive another cycle uh, in its current form. Now, that may be a very good thing. But it's kind of too bad if, uh, if you're someone who has warm feelings about the Republican Party, particularly the way it was until Donald Trump came along. And uh, what would you suggest people with your sort of political leanings do next if that's what happens in the Republican Senate? Uh, I would suggest they vote for me in the Republican primaries. And if I can make a point... Time is, uh, time is passing, and the ballot access deadlines are, are slipping by in some states almost every day now. And by the time we get to the end of February, uh, there would be, not be time enough for a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio or a Mike Pence, for that matter, to get into the race. If anything should happen to Mr. Trump, either through legal 
proceedings or through him deciding he wants to go back to uh, burnishing his brand uh, or just because uh, his, uh, his popularity sinks to the point where the senators say in order to preserve the institution of the Republican Senate, uh, we have to remove this guy from office, which I think could happen. I mean, I've, I've argued that that's the only way the country as a whole, which now is completely exhausted, I can tell you from my travels all over the country, everybody is exhausted. And the only way we can breathe a sigh of relief and all get on with our business is for the Senate to remove Mr. Trump uh, from office. And I think I've heard you say that independents, by and large, are pretty receptive to your message. But when you come across someone who's a diehard Trump supporter, what do they say to you? No, that, that's not really my quarry here. If someone's a diehard Trump supporter, I'm probably not going to bark up uh, that tree. My, my major uh, duty here in, uh, in these uh, 24 states that allow crossover voting is to greatly enlarge the electorate of those who vote in the Republican primary so that more millennials, more Gen Xers, more women, particularly in the face of the recent uh, anti-abortion statutes that have passed in the South and Midwest with the uh, uh, favor of the Trump administration, which are completely outrageous, uh, so that uh, those those groups would be more represented in the Republican primary than in, than in the past. And it wouldn't be difficult. And, I, you know, I've, I've had a substantial outreach to the minority community, as I did when I was in office here in, in Massachusetts, and uh, I, I think that's not unappreciated. Uh, I did a lot uh, for immigration uh, when I was uh, governor here, and people know that my policy is that uh, the fact that America is a melting pot is a good thing, and we actually need more, uh, more uh, work visas, immigrant visas, not less, in order to populate uh, the agriculture industry, the construction industry, and the tourism industry. And if you ask business people in the United States, they're all liberals on immigration because they know that we need that immigration. Uh, and not to put too fine a point on it, but 40% of all the Fortune 500 companies were, uh, existing today were founded by immigrants or their children, 40%. And are there some areas in which you think that you're more conservative than President Trump? Well, sure. I'm an economic conservative. I, I was ranked the most fiscally conservative governor in the country by um, Wall Street Journal and Cato Institute when I was in office. Uh, and, uh, you know, in terms of foreign policy, I, I think we have to be prepared uh, for meetings with other countries. We can't do it on the fly. Uh, Mr. Trump has, to put it charitably, a very informal foreign policy, and he's unwilling to listen to anybody. And I've been, in, I've been told by members, sitting members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and former directors of the CIA that the most terrifying thing they've ever done in government is to brief Donald J. Trump about a national security issue, because after two minutes, a light goes off in his, his eyes, and he starts fiddling with the People magazine on the desk next to him and says, no, no, keep talking, I'm listening. And then, hey, that's a pretty good picture of Melania there. Look, have you seen this one? And he just won't listen anymore. And, you know, he's not a reader, he's not a listener, he has really no knowledge base that I can perceive on, on any issue. Uh, you know, climate change is a hoax. Well, what do these think? Those 2,000 scientists who said it's coming like a freight train were all bribed. Maybe he thinks they were all on the take. You know, I don't think so. That's not really their world <laughs> wall, hoax. No, he can remember those slogans. And when you uh, joined the Libertarian Party, I think 
you said you were in it for life. Is that right? Yeah, and you know what I would say about that? It's true. I've been uh, classifying myself as a small-l libertarian since I was in law school. The first press conference I ever had as governor in Massachusetts in room 156 in the State House, I said, welcome fellow libertarians. Only Bob Headland laughed. <laughs> but Now uh, the mayor of Weymouth. Yeah, no, I know. I still see him. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I carried the uh, social movement conservative, anti-abortion, anti-gay uh, dogma of the Republican National Party on my back like a 300-pound weight all of my races uh, in, in the 90s. And uh, uh, so it was fun to uh, not have to worry about that. And now running against... Uh, uh, the Republican establishment. I again don't have to worry about that. So, uh, but I'm the same guy with the same positions as I was in 2016. Not a one of them has changed. And and before you ran for office, you were a federal prosecutor. And I understand you're also you consider Bill Barr, who's now Attorney General, and fully part of the Trump administration and the Trump agenda, a friend of yours. Well, no, I, I would say that's a little. Strong, I would say I, I knew him uh, when he was uh, AG for Bush 41 and later when he was uh, had some uh, crossover with him when he was working. I think it was for Verizon in Westchester County in New York. And he's a hell of a lawyer. I mean, he was a super lawyer and very strong. But something happened. Uh, and in June 2018, he sent an unsolicited memo into the Justice Department saying, in case you were wondering, I, Bill Barr, think that, uh, you know, the power of the president under Article 2 is absolute. And if he exercises a designated power, such as the power of pardon, he cannot be questioned for why he did it, or else he'd be in court all day uh, defending against criminal cases. Well, that proves much too much. It proves that if the president took a $100 million bribe from Paul Manafort in order to pardon him, that nobody could touch him for that. That's just not the law. It's not the Constitution either. Uh, and uh, more recently, uh, A.G. Barr has gotten involved in uh, running after the FBI for investigating uh, Mr. Trump back in 2016, even though the inspector general has since found out that there was ample predication for that. And, you know, when the FBI opens an investigation, that's not spying, that's opening an investigation. And I've seen it happen 10,000 times. So uh, I, I think uh, Mr. Barr has become uh, a, a personal advocate for the president, just as Mr. Giuliani has done. Mr. Giuliani is being paid to do so as a private lawyer in his defense. Although I think he's working pro bono for Trump. Okay. Uh, but Mr. Barr is being paid by the people of the United States. And I don't know if you'd recall, but I actually resigned from the Justice Department back at the end of the 80s because I saw that the administration was allowing political influence to come into law enforcement and that's a complete no-no. When, when the members of the Justice Department are not striving to do justice uh, without fear or favor, which is the motto of the Justice Department, that's a huge threat to our democracy. And so I said, I'm not going to stay here and bear silent witness to what's going on now. Well, under, under Mr. Trump, uh, the politicization of law enforcement is something that the president himself asks for and insists on out loud, personally, every day of his life. Just another reason why he's not a good fit leading the executive branch of the United States. Um, what's been the most difficult part of this? And I imagine a lot of it has been tough. Difficult part for me, running against Donald Trump? 
Right. Nothing. Is it, are you enjoying it? I mean, yeah. I, it's very serious, the issues, but yeah. are you feeling... Uh, well, I completely enjoy it. No, I'm yeah. completely the happy warrior. Yeah. No, I've never really had anybody on the other side of the other side of the case title, so to speak, uh, who I've felt about the same way uh, as, uh, as I do about Mr. Trump. And, and it's not just an opinion. I mean, that is, uh, as, as many commentators have pointed out, in connection with the impeachment proceedings and the article in Christianity Today that we were discussing, uh, facts have made it unmistakably clear that Mr. Trump is cut loose from his moorings and that he's a clear and present danger to our democratic institutions in the United States. You know, a lot of a lot of people who sort of come at President Trump maybe from a more liberal perspective, uh, then go on to complain that not the president himself, but his, you know, diehard supporters are sending them death threats, that sort of thing. Is that happening to you in any way? Uh, no comment on that, but uh, you know, I don't think it's so uh, hard to understand how Trump got elected. I mean, I thought he was pretty refreshing as a candidate, particularly in the early going before the Steve Bannon influence became obvious. But in the debates, when there were still 12 or 14 Republicans uh, on, on the stage, uh, I thought Trump was, was the quickest and the fastest. And I can remember leaping up because I knew him in New York. Uh, and he had uh, lived in New York the decade of the aughts, 2000 to 2010. He had the universal reputation of being the most dishonest businessman in New York. So I was surprised to see him kind of shining in these debates with a rapid pivot right post format. It's something that John Kerry and I got pretty good at in our race in uh, 96. It, it's an art form, and he had burnished it for years and years in reality TV. So he was not just good. He was very good at it. So I can see how he captivated uh, people's attention. And then he had this wonderful slogan, Drain the Swamp. I mean, I am not politically correct, uh, and uh, I just thought that was terrific. And I've had three stints in... Washington, so I'm well familiar with the so-called headless fourth branch down there. And I think uh, it is good to get uh, a new injection of a, a political uh, political assessment of things every once in a while into the Washington swamp, one that wasn't there in the last administration. But I'd sort of like to have the new injection not be completely lawless and against uh, a free press and a free independent judiciary and everything that we've fought and sweated blood, sweat, and tears for uh, over the centuries. You know, he has said recently, there will be a civil war in this country if I, Donald Trump, don't get reelected in 2020. Well, th them's fighting words. I mean, we had a civil war already, okay? 600,000 American dead. You know, and, and Steve Bannon has said, if Trump's not reelected, there's going to be four years of unrequited payback. Translation, it's going to make, uh, you know, uh, Dick Nixon's enemies list look like a nursery rhyme. That's no way to talk, and that's no way to talk from the uh, Oval Office of President of the United States. Are you going to get to debate President Trump? Well, not if he has anything to say about it. He's already said, I'm not going to debate Bill Weld or anybody else. And um, I suspect it's because he has no substantive knowledge base about any issue. Well, thank you for uh, coming in here, uh, former Governor Bill Weld, to talk with Michael Jonas and myself. It's been really interesting, and uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.